It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. While many of the Stax Records originators are gone, William Bell is still here. And the soulful horn-driven music of Stax and the Memphis Soul Sound are still here too. Now Bell, 81 and an Atlanta resident, is being honored as a creator of the soul that put Memphis in the pantheon of American music and as a teacher who's kept that tradition alive. Bell is one of nine artists and craftspeople who have been named as National Heritage Fellows, recipients of the nation's highest honor in the folk and traditional arts. The AJC's Bo Emerson recently spoke with the R&B legend, and he's here to bring us that conversation. Welcome, Bo. Thanks, Jane. So you got to speak with a, a legend there. That was pretty exciting, actually. And I, I think a lot of Atlanta people don't know that um, William Bell has lived in Atlanta long, longer than he lived in Memphis. Huh. Wow. I didn't I know I didn't know that. And, uh, you know, I know we have done stories on him in the past, but I think I just completely forgotten that. Well, his, uh, he doesn't uh, tour that much. Um, he plays, uh, but he only plays when whoever is uh, whoever is uh, putting the gig together is willing to have a 12 piece band right. <laughs> on the gig. And they say, are you sure you have to have a 12 piece band? And he says, if you want William Bell, you need the you need the band. Right. Yeah. You, you really can't. You can't have like a, a Stax soul show without horns for sure. Well, that's it. Yeah. And I also like what he said about that, which was, um, you know, part of this, uh, this is a national endowment of the arts award that he was given. And there's the teaching is, is part of that. Uh, these, these are people who are uh, essentially, they help to support and, and uh, continue uh, the legacy of a particular kind of uh, tradition. And, uh, uh, he's he's not only doing that, but he's also putting young musicians to work. Right. So, uh, that uh, that's another uh, 
another element that is, uh, you know, even above and beyond what, what the NEA expects of you. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, it, William Bell is, as you mentioned, it's like he may not be the first name you think of when, when you think of Stacks. I mean, there's Otis Redding and Rufus Thomas and, and lots of other uh, artists. But, I mean, he was there at the very beginning. In fact, I think... I mean, you think of his first, his debut single was uh, You Don't Miss Your Water Till Your Well Runs Dry, right. um, which he wrote. I was shocked to find that that wasn't really that big a hit when he released it. Well, and in fact, uh, the, the same deal happened with, with uh, his other, um, which was Born Under a Bad Sign. Uh, King is the one that, that uh, made it, uh, you know, into really a national hit. And then, of course, Eric Clapton made it into an intergalactic hit. Yeah, but. Uh, but also, if you listen to William Bell's version of it, it's just as good as Albert King, if not better. Yeah. And uh, he's just got that soulful voice. I yeah. mean, his voice is something. You don't think about him when you're thinking about great American male vocalists, but he's one of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It, it, it's, if you look at, you know, his, his list of hits, it's like it, there, there weren't that many huge hits, at least not, you know, on the you know, on the, on the main billboard charts, he had lots of R and B hits. Um, right. You know, he had a few in, in the UK. Actually his biggest hit here was came in the seventies, which, which surprised me. Uh, and that was, uh, I'm trying to remember which tune that was. Yeah. I can't, I, I'm trying to remember now too. And I can't. Well, I'll tell you what's really surprising is that he didn't get Grammy until uh, essentially they um, re sort of reignited uh, 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 the the stacks label and 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 they and they sort of brought him back again and he wrote this is where I live and that was 2015 but you listen to it and it is just perfect it's right. just the kind of sound that that you that you remember maybe with a couple of contemporary uh, flourishes on it right so uh, uh, is it John Leventhal and Roseanne Cash's uh, husband did the uh, uh, right. uh, did the production on it. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it's just a super nice song. And I, I guess even that tune, you, you probably haven't heard that on the radio that much, but when you hear it, uh, it definitely, you know, it's, um, it goes deep into that, into that great sound. Yeah. And, and I looked up, it was trying to love too, which was, uh, his biggest, Oh, there you that, go. that was in uh, 1976. It was the top 10 hit just barely, um, right. on the billboard charts, but it was a number one R and B hit. So, uh, so that was that was one of his biggest. I, that was his biggest, I believe, uh, as as performer. Um, and one other thing that I noticed, it's like he was the first male solo act signed to Stax. So I think the fact that he never stopped writing songs, which is a, a great songwriter, just keeps on doing it. Yeah. And he, he was writing them right up until, you know, still now. But in, even in 2015, he's writing a song that's good enough to get him a Grammy. Yeah. Um, that is the reason that he's done so well. It's because he's made he's made being a songwriter at least as much of an important part of his uh, work. Sitting down every day, just just doing the work uh, as as all the other stuff, yeah. you know, re recording, touring, you know, practicing, rehearsing, yeah. firing, hiring. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's it's, it's uh, a lot more uh, lucrative. Uh way to make a living in music than touring and, and, and easier to, to, yeah. If you, you can know, just get, it. especially these days, cause uh, they're, yeah. <laughs> when there they no interrupt tour. your touring, you, you, yeah. you know, the songwriting royalty is uh, really help. You know, it's a pity you think about it uh, since the uh, 
recording uh, industry now they don't sell anything. They just they just uh, give it away on Spotify. Uh, they uh, that all of their money was now uh, came from touring. Then they took that away too. Yep. Right. Yeah. It's really sad, but. But like say, you know, he's he's thriving, which is is a great thing. And uh, I think we should uh, probably hear from the man himself. Let's do. All right. Here's uh, Bo Emerson's chat with uh, the great William Bell. Thanks, Bo. Mr. William Bell, you are one of the one of the cornerstones of the the stack sound. You were the earliest um, uh a hit maker for that for that label. You were the first uh, solo male artist uh, signed uh, to the Stax record label back in 1961, I think. Is that right? And that is <laughs> that's how long I've been around. Yeah, that's a that's a long time. Mm-hmm. You uh, 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 and 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 you are still at it. And, and this year you have uh, been honored by the National Endowment of the Arts as a National Heritage Fellow. One among nine people uh, this year to receive that honor, and uh, we're honored to have you with us here on our podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, and uh, just happy to be here. Well, it's uh, you have a- enormous uh, tenacity and uh, uh, stick to itiveness. You uh, you got a Grammy just uh, uh, three or four years ago. Um, with uh, with another release on the on the revivified Stax label, uh, this is where I live. That's a that's a long time from uh, when you started with Stax to when you got your first Stax Grammy, isn't it? Yeah, that that was a great uh, experience though, because uh, being the first uh, male single male artist that they signed back in the day, and to uh, sign again with them forty years later and um, have my first Grammy and, and give them a Grammy for that effort. It was just great. Well, it's a, it's a, a, a great record. It's a great sound. And it really has a lot in common with, uh, you know, what they call the stack sound. So what do they mean by that? What do they mean when they say the stack sound? Well, I, I think it was a combination of different genres of music coming to together to create a product uh, because uh, Steve and Duck came from uh, a kind of a rockabilly band that did a lot of black songs, but they did it with kind of country. And you and Steve um, Cropper and Duck Dunn, who they play the rhythm section there at Stax. So we clarify that, yes. And uh, they hooked up with uh, Al Jackson Jr. and Booker T. Jones and created the MGs, uh, which is the, like the house band that played behind probably 90% of all of the stacks records that came out, all of the major hits. And what and, a house band, huh? Yeah, that sound was so unique because they took a blend of all of the experiences and everything from a little bit of country, a little bit of blues, a little bit of jazz, and all and blended it all together, and we created a, a different sound. Since most of the singers and a lot of the musicians were coming out of church, uh, we created that soul music sound. Now, and you describe that. It also sounds like a description of your work because your your song, "You Don't Miss Your Water," it has a real uh, a gospel feel. It has a, a sort of a country feel because it's such a story song. 
And uh, uh, the the uh, so you have a you put together a lot of different uh, 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 parts of American music to make that kind of sound. I do because I was exposed at an early age to a lot of things on the radio uh, in Memphis. We heard uh, in all on one station. We heard jazz. Uh, we heard uh, rhythm and blues. We heard uh, doo wop. And then we heard uh, gospel all in the same day. So we, we were ex uh, exposed to a lot of different musical forms. And coming up in Memphis, of course, that's the W.C. Handy where he wrote the first blues song there. Uh, and uh, it's just, uh, it seeps into you through osmosis. You know? <laughs> but um, it, it was a combination of all of those ingredients that made that sound when we came together in the studio there at Stax. And when you talk about blues, uh, you and Booker T. Jones wrote uh, Born Under a Bad Sign, and it's the quintessential blues song covered by everybody. Talk about how you put that together. You say you started out, you had a bass line in your head, you had a, you had a chorus, and you had one verse. Yes, I had a bass line. I was going to write it for myself. I had a bass line. Uh, an idea for the song and a course. And I had written uh, the first verse and the course. And uh, I happened to be in the studio. I was one of those artists that uh, if I were not touring, I was always in the studio trying to uh, learn the ins and outs of the recording business, how to mic a drum or what uh, microphone to use for this particular thing. So I was always like going to university there. And I was in, in the studio the day that Albert was had a session. And um, in the afternoon, he didn't have quite enough songs to record. So Jim Stewart asked me if I had something that Albert uh, could do because he knew that I was a good writer. And I thought about it and I had this one song and I told him about that and he said, uh, well, can you sing a little bit of it for Albert? And of course I did, uh, sang the chorus in the first verse for Albert and he loved it, but I didn't have the complete song. So Booker and I went overnight uh, and uh, finished up the song, came back the next day and uh, we recorded it on Albert. Now that's, that's what you call uh, uh, being a professional. When you say, okay, I need a song and I need it now. So uh, you somehow had the ability to just sit down and crank it out. Well, I knew Albert as a person and to write a song for another uh, musician or a vocalist, uh, you have to kind of get inside the person that they're, uh, uh, what they love, and what they, you know, uh, their whole makeup of that person. And um, so I knew Albert and uh, I knew at the time, you know, Albert, I don't know if this is well known, but he could not uh, read and he could sign his name, but he, he couldn't read or write. So uh, I started the second verse with that, uh, of that idea. And so when he heard it, he just totally identified with it. And um, he didn't trust many people, but he trusted me and Booker enough to 
let us uh, give him the, the parts of it that he needed. And he just nailed it uh, and put his iconic guitar work on it. And there you go. And of course, One under bad we're side. talking about Albert King here, who uh, that whatever year that was, 1967 or something, he uh, made it into a number one song. Oh, yeah, they took it. They broadened the whole scope of it because uh, when uh, Eric and, and, and all the guys cut it for cream, uh, it just went number one in every country. Uh, and of course, exposed it to a different lot of genres of music beyond blues. And then uh, it became uh, just a standard blues song for a lot of iconic blues uh, singers and players to do. Jimi Hendrix did it, Buddy Guy and Coco Taylor did it, Stevie Ray, Ray Vaughan did it with Albert. I mean, it's just a lot of a host of uh, artists that did it. And when you think about it, uh, you don't think of William Bell as as a blues uh, uh, songwriter. You you think of you uh, in in a variety of ways, but you you co-wrote one of the most quintessential blues songs there is. Yeah, I uh, like I said, growing up in Memphis, I heard everything, and there's not that much difference between uh, the genres. If you look at it, it all stems from gospel. Hank Williams Jr. was a gospel singer before he started. And most of your iconic country artists started in gospel. Uh, Elvis loved gospel music. So uh, it stems from gospel in the churches uh, into from the cotton fields, from the slaves and throughout the South. And uh, that was a way of expressing uh, your lifestyle or what was going on in your life, the hard times, the, the, the lost love, the, the gain loves or whatever. Um, so that particular combination, especially with uh, country, it's the same common denominator when you write a good song. It, it tells a story, uh, you've got good lyrical content and the melodic structure on it. And, uh, that's what uh, that's why a lot of country singers like even in country i've had uh, you don't miss your water cut country uh they can readily identify with uh, uh, a soul song or an r&b song because it's telling the same story now i want you to uh bring the listeners here up to date because you uh you are synonymous with memphis but you moved to atlanta in 1974 and uh, you've been here longer than you were in Tennessee. Um, Absolutely. And so you're as Atlanta as it gets. Uh, uh, now, t t tell about um, what, what that was like and uh, encountering your, uh, your Atlanta musician friends. Well, I was coming to Atlanta um, early on before I moved here, and I fell in love with the city because it, um, it was a lot uh, similar to Memphis. Uh, it had a better uh, arts, uh, the artsy part of Atlanta was a lot better than Memphis. Memphis had the music, but the arts itself for the stage plays and all of the mm -hmm. things that just weren't going on at that time back in the 60s. So Atlanta had all of that similar to New York and everything. And I was coming here, I played the 
a lot of the old auditorium, the Royal Peacock on Auburn Avenue, and fell in love with the city. And when Stax uh, went under the first time in Memphis, uh, see, as kids, we were at Stax in the teenage years and coming up. We didn't think that Stax would ever stop. And when it did, it just uh, it was traumatic for us. And I needed a change of scenery. Booker went to L.A. I came to Atlanta. And, and we just, the artists of Stax just kind of scattered about. But uh, I wanted to come to Atlanta because I had acquired management in Atlanta. And uh, so I was familiar with the city. I was coming here a lot in meetings for managerial purposes. So I came here and for a couple of years and I just had an efficiency apartment and hadn't officially moved in. I was bouncing between Memphis, Atlanta, Memphis, Atlanta. Uh, and then finally, when I was here so much, and I, I was spending so much money in those apartments and everything. I said, I might as well buy a home. So when I bought the home, I sold my home in Memphis and and took a shop here. And I was uh, welcomed with open arms. So I'm kind of like, a, I call myself a, the stepchild that everybody accepted. So <laughs> now all of the, both cities, I'm torn between two cities because both <laughs> Both cities recognize me, and which is a good thing on both parts. And uh, but I love Atlanta, and um, I love Memphis. It's still home. It'll always be home. But Atlanta is my home now. I think you wrote a song about that, trying to love two lovers. I love two, <laughs> absolutely. Because I, I first moved here, I had one car registered in in Atlanta, and then one car. Well, I hadn't registered in Atlanta, but I had two cars. I had one registered in Memphis. And so I was driving back and forth to Atlanta. So finally, I was pulled over for some reason. I don't know what. But uh, they had noticed that I had been in, in Atlanta for more than 30 days or something. So I had to, I had to get the Georgia driver's license. I, I mean, driver's license and tags and everything and register the other car here. So I had. Two homes, two cars. So finally, I sold one car and stole the home in Memphis and just moved full time here. Now, t the uh, the National Heritage uh, Fellows uh, are responsible for uh, sustaining um, uh, a, a traditional art form in, in, in the United States, and they're recognized for that by the National Endowment of the Arts. Um, and uh, they they uh, this year they have recognized dancers. Um, uh, uh, a, uh, a, a fellow who carves birch bark canoes, um, traditional, a traditional fiddler, um, and, uh, and they recognize you, which makes you traditional, I suppose. Now, do you, do you consider uh, your music traditional? I think so. I, I've been around so long. <laughs> it's like, uh, and uh, I probably have influenced so many different artists, you know, even Billy Idol, he cut one of my songs in, in, in the rock, you know, category. So yeah, been around so long. So I'm kind of traditional now. Um, the organization is such a wonderful organization because they do do their homework and reach out to individuals that have contributed to 
the American art form and it, it's in different genres, whether you're a painter or like you say, carving uh, statues or something. And uh, as a musician, I feel uh, very humbled and, and uh, elated over this award because I've gotten a lot of different awards, but this one is right up there with the best. And um, it kind of singles me out uh, and an affirmation of all of the things that I've gone through in my career and, and all of that. And sometimes when you're going through that, you don't know if anybody is listening or observing, you know, but this is kind of saying, yeah, somebody was paying attention. Oh yeah, they were paying attention. And they also uh, uh, were congratulating you on the impact you've had on sort of the next generation. People, I mean, not just Billy Idol, but, you know, Billy Idol's children. You've had, uh, you've had people from that generation coming up uh, in the Stax Academy. And um, some of them, I, I'm, I'm betting you've probably hired for your 12-piece band on occasion when, you're, when you've gone out to perform. But that's a big, important part of this. So t t tell about that. Yeah, I have taken uh, those kids out. Uh, we played the Smithsonian in D.C., and I took them down to the AARP convention <laughs> in Orlando. They get the full gamut with me uh, because they're just wonderful kids. And I was one of the initial artists that helped start the, the kids and, and teaching them the ins and outs of show business and helping them chase their dreams and find their. And they have been just wonderful. We. Not only do we have the Stax Museum, now we have the Academy for the Kids, and we've got the number one charter school in Tennessee, so uh, they can go on to further their education, and a lot of those kids come out of uh, Soulsville Stax, and they go on to get full scholarships at uh, Berkeley and different colleges, and they've gone on to be great professionals uh, that some of them I know of that uh, uh, dancing uh, with the Judith uh, dance troupe and performing with that, which is unreal. And uh, there's just, uh, there's some songwriters that went to LA and different places, New York, and, and have had million seller records cut uh, by people. So it's just wonderful to see these kids blossom like that. And uh, I have used them on some of the Take Me to the River tours and they just, um, to, so that they could get an idea of what it's like uh, with a hands-on experience working before a live audience and being able to perform and read an audience and, and just get a working idea of show business. Uh, and it's, it's been rewarding for me because uh, uh, it keeps me young, in a sense. Uh, I have a reason to get up in the morning, and I like uh, doing all of that. And um, so I, I love working with kids. Uh, we work with a, a lot of different kids, uh, both in L.A. and with the Berkeley people and, with, of course, with Stax. Now, now, speaking of young, uh, you are 81 years old. Is that correct? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> I have the scars to prove it. 
No, I am. Yes. I, I don't feel that, but I, I am. Thank goodness. You know, I don't now you, you must be doing something right. Cause you, uh, uh, you look fantastic. You podcasters might not be able to see, uh, this man here, but, uh, he's, uh, uh, he, he is, uh, quite, quite the specimen. So what are you doing to keep yourself in, in such good condition? Well, um, you know, I love what I do and if a happy mind, you know, is, is a great mind, I, you know, and I can look in the mirror every day and I, I just, uh, I'm really, I'm a health nut. I eat correctly. Um, I never got into a lot of the drug culture and all of that. Um, like a lot of friends of mine have gone on and did and, but I, I try to keep myself as healthy and as up to date mentally on uh, things as possible. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, if you think uh, young, if you think healthy and put healthy stuff in your body, then it helps you a lot. Well, I think you ought to put out an exercise video or something so people can do whatever it is you're doing. Maybe, uh, uh, well, you. I, yeah, I, I do exercise. Um, and I've always been a, a physical nut. I, uh, I like, um, because to go on stage and do an hour and a half show, it's taxing sometimes. It's yes. taxing on, on your stamina and all of that. And I've got some young, younger guys in the band and sometimes they look at me and say, <laughs> you know, they get back. <laughs> but uh, I like that, you know, and um, I that keeps me from having to visit the gyms a lot. I've got a, a smaller gym stuff in my home, but uh, yeah, I do exercise and work out and and keep physically fit as well as mentally fit. And and the other thing is you've created uh, a, a comfortable uh, life for yourself with the songs that you've written. Um, the, uh, you still love to perform, but, but those songs are a, uh, a, a, a form of, uh, 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 constant revenue, I would guess. Oh yeah. I, I go to the mailbox a lot, so, <laughs> which is good. And I, I think, I hope when I'm in a, in a hover round, I can still run down to the mailbox. So <laughs> yeah, uh, to, to be, uh, you know, I, I like, um, that a lot of my stuff now has been covered by even some of the hip hoppers and rappers and all of that and different genres of artists that uh, music and artists uh, for different generations come along and they can see something in something that I've created. And it's a rewarding, wonderful feeling to know that they can identify with it. Plus the monetary thing doesn't hurt either. Yes, sir. And and uh, it keeps me off of social security. <laughs> but um, it yeah, wasn't like I, it happened by accident, though. I mean, you uh, you uh, started writing songs when you were uh, a boy. Uh, you were an only child. You had a lot of time to think about poetry and and uh, and to write things down. And you 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 kept yourself uh, sort of company with the stories that you, that you told in your poems. And then you kept on, you kept at it uh, all, all along, uh, from what I understand. And I, and yeah, I'll also, uh, I learned the business of music 
very, mm-hmm. very early after I had a conversation with uh, Sam Cook once. And um, because when I first signed my first contract, it was all inclusive. You gave away the publishing, you gave away. So you were a songwriter, singer. That was what you received. Right. But publishing, production and all of that. And I, I learned the inner workings of the music business. And that's what I try to tell the kids. Hold on to your creative works, because as you get older, that'll be a treasure chest for you. Um, and, uh, after my first five years of stacks, I, I renegotiated my contract and, and asked for at least a piece of the publishing and we split publishing on a lot of stuff. But before then, that first five years, uh, it was all inclusive in my first year contract, but I have to say, I don't, uh, feel like that it was a waste that I gave up the earnings from the publishing, because that first five years at Stacks was going to university. And Jim and Estelle uh, allowed us kids to come in and uh, hone our craft, learn a craft, and make a living at it and a career, have a career with it. So I was going to university then and and paying, that was my tuition when I gave that up. And uh, but you do have to, after a while, have that business increment going for you so that uh, so many entertainers in the early years and even now, if you don't have that, if you don't know the business of music, how to protect your rights and all of that, you wind up broke after earning millions of dollars, you'll still wind up broke. So yeah, no I good. never wanted to be like that. And I wanted to. I was always business minded. And so I learned as much as I could about not only being self-produced, I wrote my own stuff, but if I could produce my own stuff, that made me a triple threat. Then I can perform it and everything. And I was more, uh, 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 I think more, yeah, for, for the labels themselves that signed me, uh, I was uh, more of a, uh, a what they call a triple threat, so it was good. They could just say, "I want an album by you in six months," and I was able to give it to them rather than have to wait on a writer or wait on a producer to do it for me. I could do it all myself. Now, uh, you got any uh, uh, surprises coming up with some some Atlanta folks that? Um... Uh, you may be uh, collaborating with. There's a lot of a lot of music happening in this town, um, and a lot of them are interested in your work too. Oh yeah, I um, I've got some things now uh, that are in some movies that are out now. Some on Netflix and and different movies and stuff. Uh, we've got another "Take Me to the River" segment coming up with the New Orleans musician. That's a film, uh, documentary film, like the first one with, with the uh, Memphis musicians. So we've got a, a second one coming. Um, and I just uh, went to, uh, and created an entire concert with my band, the Total Package Band. I've got a, a 10-piece band here that's fantastic. So we they've been with me. They're like a uh, surrogate family, I call them, because they've been with me like 20-some years. And uh, so we went into a sound uh, stage and filmed it. 
And so we're readying that as we speak and uh, which uh, we'll have some final uh, product on that probably around uh, July uh, because uh, it's just fantastic and it came out so well and we're all elated about it. Uh, and then I'm still writing on some new songs for myself. Uh, I think I've got one more album or two in me. So <laughs> I'm doing that and working with a couple of the, the acts that are with the band. And we've got a singer with the band, Tonio, that uh, we're coming with some stuff on him. And then there's another young guy here in my band, a guitarist player, that we're writing some songs with him, Cody uh, Madlock. So uh, we're just busy. I love being busy and keeping busy and that gets me up in the morning and starts my day. Now, what about what about retiring and going fishing? Is that going to happen? Uh, I, you know, in, 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 in my business, I travel a lot. Uh, I, I love the uh, tropics. So I, I, that's a third home of mine in the tropics down around the islands. And I, I go there so much, it's like I'm a <laughs> native honorary islander now. Everybody at the airport and everybody knows me. Um, but I spend a lot of time on my downtime doing that, uh, going out. And sometimes we fish, sometimes we don't. We just lay out on a boat and float around. But blue marlin fishing and, and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, I've done that a lot and I love it. And that's probably, other than watching old black and white movies, that's probably the only, I think, thing I love doing. You know, I love my music work, but that's like work environment. Um, but when I'm off, I'm either at home in my man cave watching an old uh, <laughs> something, or I'm down on the islands hanging out uh, Drinking coconut water or something. <laughs> what's your What's your favorite old black and white movie? Oh God, I've got so many. I think Casablanca has to be one of the ones uh, that I think I, I'm a romanticist at heart and hopeless romantic. Um, and um, there are others, but uh, Casablanca would. Uh, be right up there. I'm a Westerner. I like High Noon, and I think that was one of the best Westerns ever made. Um, and just different ones, but I, I listen to and look at so many, I can almost uh, tell you all the dialogue. <laughs> <these things. laughs> I've got an extensive collection that I go to buy, and when uh, all of the DVD places were in, in, in business, I yeah. would go in every black and white movie I saw, I would get it. And so I've got quite a uh, collection of them. And I think the NEA has made it clear that the country is very grateful for the good music you've made. And I'm grateful you spent so much time talking to me. I appreciate you uh, 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 sitting down with Access Atlanta's podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks for having me again. And, uh, you know, uh, entertainers wouldn't be entertainers without people that are behind the scenes cheering us on, you know, and, and the, uh, the people with the media and the disc jockeys and the fans, all of that is what makes the complete uh, person like a William Bell or any other entertainer. 
Well, William Bell, thank you for being with us and you take care of yourself out there. Thank you, will do and you do the same. All righty. There's nothing normal about our new normal, but AJC.com is the same trusted source you've always had, and we have just as much great content, if not more. That's why each week I'll highlight my personal picks for the best things to do, see, and experience, and the stories are easy to find the past on year AJC.com. Many people have found appreciation for leaving the confines of their home to enjoy the great outdoors. The metro Atlanta area has several places where residents can take a break from their everyday and get their blood pumping again. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution shares seven ideas for a memorable outdoor adventure. The AJC's Zachary Hansen has compiled a list that includes renting a yurt at Stone Mountain and fly fishing spots close to home. Find all the details under the Things to Do tab at AJC.com. Ebony and Jet magazines, based in Chicago for decades, will have a major presence in Atlanta, the company announced on Monday. Both magazines filed for bankruptcy liquidation in June 2020, and the assets were sold to Bridgman Sports and Media, run by former NBA star Ulysses Jr. Bridgman and his family. Ebony relaunched online March 1st, and Jet will follow on June 1st. In an exclusive interview with the AJC, the basketball star's daughter, Eden Bridgman, talked with Rodney Ho about plans for the magazines. Find it on the radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. Putting someone's name on a building shows the person, or at least that person's money, was highly regarded in his or her community. Either way, people of note are memorialized for as long as that building stands. Around Atlanta, many prominent names dot buildings, schools, hospitals, and parks, but how many are women? Quite a few, it seems. To mark Women's History Month, freelance writer Mary Welch tells us which ones in a story you'll find under Things to Do on AJC.com. Talk to Salvadorans about their national dish, the pupusa, and they're likely to tell you the griddled corn cakes are much easier to buy from a street vendor than to make at home. Traditionally stuffed with ingredients such as cheese, chicharron, and beans, pupusas are time-consuming and tricky. Jeanette and Ken Katz are owners of La Bodega Market and Pupuseria in southwest Atlanta, a walk-up that has mastered traditional pupusas as well as newfangled versions stuffed with buffalo chicken. The story is part of our Atlanta Orders In feature, where the AJC's dining team explores some of the best in takeout. You'll find it in the living section many weekdays. Read up on all the places the team has visited on the Atlanta Restaurant Scene blog at AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith. Podcast edited by Bria Felicien. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.